0: Beyoncé had one of the best videos of all time. Well, Rosie O'Donnell's disgusting. I mean, both inside and out. You take a look at her, she's right. a slob. He is wrong. The gentleman is wrong! The gentleman is providing cover for his colleagues rather than doing the right thing! It probably... By winning, I win here and I win there. That one. Yes. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to our new series, "The Missing Element." And the premise of the series is very, very simple. I believe something's missing in our culture, in our world. Can you guess what it is? It is no secret that we live right now in kind of a culture of raging narcissism, where ego and fame and self-promotion is the norm. If you turn on the TV, if you surf the web, if you watch the playoffs, the evidence is all around you, right? We have celebrities like the Kardashians, right, who are famous for being famous, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Artists like Kanye and Pitbull and Gaga, who sing about really one topic that is themselves. Uh, you have businessmen like Donald Trump who have no problem flaunting their wealth or even slandering their enemies. Self-absorbed athletes like LeBron who kind of take ego to all-star levels. And then the politicians, uh, John Edwards, Elliot Spitzer. I'll just I'll just say it now. Anthony Weiner. Let's just get it over with. Uh, my thesis is simple. We're becoming a nation of narcissists. I, I realize celebrities and other high-profile kind of people don't represent all of us. But I think popular culture gives us a little win- window into the seismic shifts that are taking place in us as a people. Case in point, if statistics are true, many of you today will update your Facebook status. Okay, so, some of you are tweeting right now. You're doing that right now. And my question is, you really think people care where you're going for lunch? It's like, what the, like I got a broadcast. People, want, people need to know where I'm eating lunch. That's a new phenomena, social posturing, projecting a public image. But now more than ever, people are obsessed with carefully crafting an image that other people will admire and hopefully envy. It's why, for instance, someone will, you know, post that they're attending a dinner party with so-and-so and then go back at the end of the night to see how many people like this, you know? What's missing in all of this? I would submit to you one word, and that word is humility. Can you say that together? Humility. Humility is one of the least valued virtues in our world, and yet it is one of the highest attributes of the truly great in God's eyes, according to Scripture. If you'll turn with me to the book of Philippians, take your Bible, I'll show you what I mean. Philippians 2, turn to page 815. This is perhaps the New Testament's most profound treatise on on, on what made Jesus Christ truly great. What proved he wasn't just godly, but God incarnate, God in the flesh. And what did the Apostle Paul highlight? His omnipotence, that Jesus is all-powerful. No. His omniscience, that he's all-knowing. Nope, none of the above. Philippians highlights a single salient attribute. You see it in the title here, the passage, imitating Christ's humility. Let's read these verses together. Philippians 2, start at verse 1. It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship of his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in what? In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but he made himself, what's the word? Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? Look at this. God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. These were the words to actually an early Christian hymn. This is is God's word. It's what you might call, I think, his modesty manifesto. Of all the attributes, all the characteristics you could highlight of Jesus, all the, the glory, the holiness, the wisdom, the grace... One might point to as this is, this is what it means, that he was the son of God, our savior. What set him apart? You know what Paul highlights as the essential element, the missing ingredient? Humility. The fact that Jesus Christ, though he was God, voluntarily lowered himself by coming to earth, invested his life in serving others, in other words, putting our needs ahead of his own, and then voluntarily died so that you and I could have life with God. He actually died a criminal's death on the cross for my sins, for your sins, so that we can have eternal life by trusting in his name. Although Jesus was the king of heaven, he was homeless. It's called humility. Even though he's the creator, he's the king of the universe, he actually held no title, no position. He accumulated zero wealth. It's called humility. Even though we're created to worship him, Jesus came to serve us. It's called humility. Humility is the missing element in our culture, but is the key character quality in Christ's life is the foundational attribute that made him great in God's eyes. So the question is this. Why is there so little humility in our world? Why is there so little humility in our country, our government, our our church? I listened to a fascinating talk by David Brooks recently. He's a New York Times columnist, cultural commentator. I read his column every week in the Times. Brooks is a brilliant man. And he talked about this shift that's taken place in our culture over the last few years. And he he tells a story of actually driving home one night, and he's listening to NPR, where they air an episode of Command Performance. Basically, it was a variety show that they broadcast to the troops during World War II. And he's listening to this, and this particular show took place on Victory Day in 1945 as the Japanese had just surrendered to the Allies. And all the big stars were on the show, Bob Hoping, Crosby. And Crosby gets out there and says, listen to what he says. He says, you know what? We've just learned that the Japanese have surrendered to America, but this is no time for celebration. This is a moment to be humble. We just need to be worthy of the peace. We didn't win because we're God's chosen or better than anybody else. Let's be humble. And Brooks is driving home listening to this and he said, that's amazing. I mean, if there was ever a moment you would think America would do like a victory dance, it'd be after beating, you know, Hitler and and, and, and the, the Axie forces during World War II. So this is what's amazing. He gets home Walks in his house and he turns on ESPN. He's going to watch Sports Center highlights, and they're showing highlights from a football game. Okay, and the quarterback throws a pass. Receiver gets it. He runs two yards and then he's tackled. Okay, the guy gets up from his two-yard gain and does what all professional athletes would do at a time of tremendous personal achievement. He does a victory dance. Whoa! Ooh, 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 ooh. Woo, yeah! Whoa! And David Brooks said he was struck at this moment by the shift that has happened in our culture. That is, today, we do a bigger victory dance after a two-yard gain than our fathers did after winning World War II. And he said that symbolized something that is symptomatic in our culture. That over the past few decades, there's been this shift from a culture of self-effacement that says, you know what, I'm no better than anybody else. To a culture of self-expansion that says, look at me! I am the bomb. I mean, honestly, I can't believe how good I am. This is amazing. Have you noticed this? Have you seen this? It is in all channels of our culture, okay, from, from sports to government to music to finance to industry. It's like the ego monster has gotten out of his cage, taken steroids, and just gone wild, which is amusing if you're a football fan, but it's toxic if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus does not like this, okay? How did we get here? And how can we actually get back to what Paul is describing, this beautiful treatise in Philippians. Because, guys, this is a character issue. This is a Christ issue. If you're going to cultivate the kind of Christ-like character in your life that actually gets the thumbs up from the Father, this is serious. You have to work hard to understand the missing element in your own life if you're going to cultivate the kind of humility that's of tremendous worth in God's eyes. So so let me tell you how we're going to kind of attack this. This is a 3 week series and today what I'm going to do is try to try to help us understand what biblical humility is because there's misunderstanding and then talk about how did we lose our groove how, and how do we get it back? I think it's important to understand how we got here and I have some data you're going to find fascinating. But over the next 2 weeks what we're going to do is look at the model of Jesus. How did Jesus handle power? How did he handle influence in the service of others? That's what True humility is. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and others more. This will be revolutionary for many of you. By the time we get to this, if you had more humility as a husband, as a wife, I guarantee your marriage would improve. If you're, you had more humility as a business person, you're, you're, you will inevitably be more successful. I really believe that. If you have more humility as a leader, people will be more inclined to respect and actually follow you. Humility is one of the least emphasized and most influential things that contribute to success in life, in love, in leadership. So by the series end, it's going to get very practical in whatever sphere of influence God has you in. But first today, I just want to give you a little history lesson to understand how we got here. If you go back to the days of World War II and look at the lives of those who wielded power at that time, I'm talking like Harry Truman was president, Dwight Eisenhower was supreme commander of the Allied forces, you would notice something interesting. Both of them were raised in very rural towns, Missouri, Texas, and there was a certain kind of ethos in the way they were raised. They had old school values like, you know, tight family, the value of hard work, being responsible. And in the 1940s and 50s, our entire country kind of operated on a set of maxims like this. Don't get too big for your britches. You remember this? Yeah. Don't get a big what? Head. Truman remembered his neighbors as salt of the earth. He would always describe himself, I'm just a regular guy. Eisenhower actually grew up in a religious family. They got down on their knees every night for family prayer. And one night, Eisenhower described how uh, when he was very young on Halloween, his mother wouldn't let him go trick-or-treating. And so he kind of flew into this rage as a three- or four-year-old, and he beat his hands against a tree that were in the front yard and literally beat his hands bloody. And his father ran outside and grabbed Eisenhower and said, wait, get a hold of yourself, boy. And he ran up to his room, and he cried in his room for an hour until his mother came up and put lotion on his hands and bandaged them up He said, Don't ever forget this, Dwight. He that conquers his own soul is greater than he who conquers a city. And when he was 76 years old, Eisenhower looked back on that moment and he said, That was one of the most valuable moments in my entire life. He that conquers his own soul. Now, behind that ethos of humility is what theologians would call an Augustinian worldview, which simply says, We have sin within ourselves. And we need God to help conquer our weaknesses, the wild things inside. And in that view, the worst sin of all is pride. That's what, because pride estranges you from God. That pride is the original sin that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven, pride. He wanted to be worshipped like God. He goes down to the garden. He deceives Adam and Eve by appealing to their what? To their pride. You don't need God. You can be like, be your own God, pride. Pride was considered in our culture the mother of all sins because it gave birth to every other sin that takes advantage of people. Lying, lust, greed, etc. So pride is not just egotism, okay? I'm my own God. It's self-absorption. You think so much of yourself, you are blind to the needs of others. And for decades, that was an important part of how people grew up, thinking pride was the worst of all possible sins. It's why previous generations are reluctant to talk about themselves. You ever see that? If you have grandparents, they were in World War II, they're like, ah, I don't really want to talk about it. You don't talk about yourself if you're from the previous generation. The movie stars of that era, they weren't Brad Pitt. These were, these were self-effacing people like Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Gregory Peck. So humility was a social ethic and a public virtue for the first half of the 20th century. But the shift happened in the 60s and the 80s with the rise of individualism. It was championed by psychologists like Carl Rogers, Eric Fromm, who looked at their patients and they said, you know what, the problem with people today is not too much pride, the problem's low self-esteem. My patients don't need to be reminded how, how modest they are, they need to actually be puffed up a little bit. And this is a completely opposite perspective of the biblical worldview. It says the central problem is not pride, it's a lack of self-love. We don't love ourselves enough. They believe that people are basically good inside and you just need to let that goodness out and be yourself more. And so this movement began in the 60s to reorient our nation's institutions around this goal. It changed our schools, it changed our parenting, it changed our counseling, it changed religion because it became more about promoting self-love, self-esteem. Suddenly they're no longer, we we can't call anyone a winner because that would mean others are losers. So everybody gets a trophy just for showing up. I'll be honest, like candidly, this happened to our softball team on Thursday. You guys know I coach little girls softball team, nine-year-old girls, okay. We lost our 10th game of the season we we lost 10 out of 11 games We're, we finished the season 1 in 10 but we had a good time whatever i get an email the next day that says congratulations you made the playoffs <laughs> i'm literally like on what planet does a 1 in 10 record get you into the playoffs right that's that's the culture we live in again this is not just anecdotal there is hard data that brooks points to that illustrates this dramatic shift over the last half of the century listen to this In 1950, the Gallup uh, polling organization, they they polled high school seniors. Are you a very important person? In 1950, 12% of high school seniors agreed that, yes, I'm an important person. In 2006, you want to take a guess? 80% of seniors consider themselves a very important person. So so there's a shift. If if you look at, actually, our, our nation's math scores, our nation obviously used to score very, very well in math. Now we're down globally, some say about 36th in the world, okay? But if you ask Americans, are are, are we really good at math, we are number one in the world. (laughs) We are not middle of the pack, we are number one in the world believing we're the best at math, okay? And it's like, where do we get these ideas? According to Gallup, 96% of college professors believe they have above average teaching skills. It's not just professors, it's parenting. In 1962, there were zero articles in academic journals on self-esteem. In 1992, there were 2,500. If you go back to the 50s, parents were asked the question, what's the most important thing you want for your kids? And and then as now, the answer was, I want them to think for themselves. But you know what number two was in 1950? Obedience. I want my kids to respect and obey me. In 2010, obedience is now at the bottom of the list. Because parents would rather be friends than respected. So that's a shift. The shift is not just in our homes, our schools. It's in business, too. Um, This is kind of fun. Gallup gave tests to executives in industry asking them how much they knew about their industries, and they asked the executives, how confident are you that you got the answers to the test correct? In the advertising industry, marketing people felt they were correct 90% of the time. In fact, they got 60% of all the answers wrong. The most egotistical industry? Computer industry. Sorry, Apple fans. People in the computing industry thought they got 95% of their answers correct. In fact, they got 80% wrong. As Bricks humorously points out, he says, overconfidence in our abilities is actually a strongly gender-linked trait. He actually notes that men drown at twice the rate as women because men have tremendous confidence in their ability to swim after they've been drinking. It's it's, it's like an amazing, you know? (laughs) It's true. True statistic. The last thing that's increased in regard to our self-love is our culture's obsession with fame. This is fascinating. In 2005, 51% of 25-year-olds said that being famous was the most important goal they could possibly have in life. That is double the amount who said being spiritual was life's most important goal. 43% of middle school girls said their life goal was to be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. (laughs) That's twice as many who said their life ambition was to be president of Harvard. Brooks actually interviewed the president of Harvard and she said, given the chance, she'd like to be Justin Bieber's personal assistant too. So kind of evens out. Our music, our media reflects obviously this truth. Even in the 80s, music was all about like, you know, togetherness, come on, you know, we can do this. But today, most of the music in 2012 is all about how great I am. If you listen to Kanye or Pitbull or Keisha or, or, or Gaga, you know how this goes. The name of Gaga's breakthrough album is what? The fame monster. We are quickly becoming a nation of narcissists. I mean, scandals like Anthony Weiner, uh, you can't even, it's mind-boggling. You you can't even, about think about, this is like a parody of narcissism. Think about this. He didn't even have an affair with anybody. He just took pictures of himself with his shirt off and broadcast it to the world because I think people need to see this. It's mind-boggling. So any way you slice this, there's this unmistakable shift from a baseline modesty in the 40s and 50s to our current raging culture of ego, fame, and self-promotion in 2012. And we, we don't have time for this, but Brooks actually really argues that this is responsible for some of the, the, the host of social problems our country is facing today. Quick example, if you take it like our attitude towards spending, it's fascinating. He says, see, if you look, if you look at yourself or, as, at the highest you know level, that, that you're going to actually spend money to fit your station in life. In the 70s, it basically, personal consumption is flat all the way through the 70s, and suddenly it becomes 70% of GDP. This is why we have skyrocketing personal debt rates. Personal debt is basically flat at 45% decade after decade until 1979 when it shoots up to 175%. It's not just credit cards. It's this mind shift. See, if you consider yourself the center of the universe, you have no moral qualms about spending money on yourself, even money you don't have. That's, that, everyone's like, oh, what's wrong with the economy? This is the spiritual root behind our economic crisis. Previous generations like Truman or FDR would never dream of burdening future generations with catastrophic debt. They were too humble. They were too mindful of the needs of the next generation. But our generation has kind of lost its, its connection to the past that, you know, we actually stand on the shoulders of those who sacrificed before us. And responsibility to the future. Well, you know, every generation has to fend for themselves. It's all about me now, and that's where self-expansion leads. So pe- people don't have a problem anymore tapping out natural resources or stripping the environment because there's no sense of restraint from from the past or rationing for the future. Does this make sense? This 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 is, this is a this biblical ethos of humility is really something we have lost to our nation's detriment. Now the question is, how do we get back? How? do you reclaim the missing element in our personal lives so that can actually ripple out into our faith, into our families, into our our, and live counter-culturally just like Jesus did? And the answer is this. You are actually holding the answer in in your hands. Because Philippians 2 lays out, I think, the greatest explanation of what true Christ-centered humility is and what it means to kind of work it into your personal life. Again, today's an introduction. I'm going to get very practical next week. But if you look here in Philippians 2, Paul basically provides us with this beautiful working definition of biblical humility. And secondly, you know what he challenges us? He he, he calls us to, I'm going to call it a cruciform life, a life that is actually conformed to the humility of Christ that actually invites you to sacrifice your status and then use whatever power and influence God has given you to serve others ahead of yourself. Let's just unpack this together, starting with verse 1. I love how he puts this. He says, hey, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. In other words, um, if having invited Jesus into your heart through faith has made any impact on you whatsoever, then be like-minded, tender, compassionate, be be one in spirit and purpose. And then he writes in in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's read this together. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. In other words, Paul begins by warning that's selfish ambition, which, which, which is a little, that's a little bit more nuanced than it looks. Some people think being humble means you have no ambitions. You actually have any desire to, you know, to do achieve anything in your life. That's not true. If you are a type A person with ambitions, God bless you. If you have ambitions for your family, your career, your ministry, whatever, good. Because biblical humility does not preclude you having ambitions. It just says don't do anything out of what? Out of selfish ambition. What's the difference between godly ambition and selfish ambition? Godly ambition strives to do its best in order to bring glory to who? In order to bring glory to God. Did you know that? God actually puts ambition in the hearts of his people. He's wired you for glory, but the glory is supposed to go to who? God. No problem if it's aimed Godward. As long as you're using the gifts and talents he's given you to bring glory to Jesus Christ, you are on the right track as Christ followers. We drift, though, when we lose sight of God and begin competing and comparing ourselves with other people. That's selfish ambition, that's what Paul's getting at. Godly ambition is vertical, I'm bringing glory to Christ. Selfish ambition is horizontal. You look at others and you you try to get ahead because you wanna look better than them. It's not about God, it's about whether I look better than you. Do you admire me, do you envy me, do you want what I have? The actual Greek for selfish ambition is a spirit of rivalry, of competition, of the sensational desire to one up your opponent, to land the biggest fish as Wall Street puts it. This is what reality TV is all about, right? You gotta use your wits and your savvy to step over your rivals and win first place. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Vanity, how am I looking, how am I doing? Do I look good compared to you? I hope my, outf- my outfit is better than hers. I hope I make more money than he does. It's, 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 it's ugly. When you're conceited, man, you're, you're obsessed with your station in life and the glory goes to you, it's not a pretty trait. Time out, by the way. Did you notice I got a haircut? It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I, just have, I have like the best, the best hair. It's just, uh, you know, I'm sorry, enough about me. What do you think of my haircut? It's ugly, vain conceit. Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in what? In humility, consider others better than yourself." Do you want a simple equation for humility? Are you ready for this? Here it is. Here it is. True humility is an attitude that says, you are greater than me. You, yeah, you're greater than than me. Your needs are actually more important than my own. I have needs. But I'm actually voluntarily making the choice to forgo my needs so I can serve you before myself. That is the logical outcome of humility. As verse 4 expands, it says: each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because you are greater than me. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you are greater than me. Go ahead. It's gonna feel weird. Do it. You are greater than me. No, you're greater than me. No, you're greater than me. You're. It's weird, right? It's kind of weird to even say it. Now, I just stop. Uh, stop. This is not some self-help seminar. Just, just follow, follow me here. This is this is tricky. This is trickly, especially because if you're like, if you're like, oh, I like this message because actually I'm I'm actually pretty humble. You've just lost it. Okay, that's that's the tricky part of humility. There's a very important distinction here. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, low self-esteem. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less and others more. You understand that? Does that make sense? You've got to get this. Humility isn't about low self-esteem. It's about what Tim Keller calls blessed self-forgetfulness. Your mind actually begins to focus on the desires of Christ and awakens to the needs of other people so that your own ego actually dies a little bit in the process. This is what I would call the cruciform life. Anybody want to guess where we get the word cruciform from? Yeah, Crucifix, cross, this is, this, is, this is the secret, guys. See, humility is not a natural virtue. You cannot say, well, that was an interesting sermon on humility today. I'm going to try harder with that one. Humility doesn't come naturally to you or me. Humility is supernatural. It comes from the spirit that flows out of the spirit of Christ himself into those humble enough to actually ask for and receive it. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to death on a cross. Those four verses packed the most powerful punch. Paul wrote those words around 60 AD, and most scholars agree they were actually the words to an early hymn that the early Christians had. They speak, they, they were singing of Jesus' humilitas. You know what humilitas is? It's Latin for Jesus' humility on the cross. See, in the ancient world, you may be surprised to learn this. Humilitas was not an esteemed virtue. It, it, that, the Greek culture, the Roman culture operated on honor, bring honor to your family. So any idea of like that you were gonna lower yourself in anyone else's eyes was repulsive. Humilitas was the stuff of slaves, not respected rabbis. Enter Jesus, who being in very nature. God. In other words, he is the Lord. He's the creator incarnate, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And yet he had no need to prove himself or lord it over other people, but he was always the most powerful person in the room. And yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. I got to get ahead because that's what Lucifer did. I got, I got to grasp. I got to angle for position like Adam and Eve did. The son was equal to the father and yet content to submit to the father's will he did something unthinkable in our world, he made himself, what's the word? Nothing. Can you say nothing? Nothing. In other words, Jesus voluntarily said, here's what greatness is, a life of downward mobility. See, my life, your life, the success that gets trumpeted in our world is all about upward mobility, right? Get ahead in your career, try to marry the most attractive person you could possibly find, go to the best school, make as much money as you possibly can. But Jesus... Who by virtue of his status as the son of God, the king of heaven, he voluntarily surrenders his status and gives up his rights to the throne and comes to the earth in the form of what? A, taking the very nature of A, servant. What do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? According to Jesus, you put a towel around your waist, you get down on your knees, and you wash feet. Humility is about downward mobility. It is the noble choice to forgo your status and use your power to serve others. I love that definition. It comes from the book Humilitas by John Dixon. I can highly recommend it. Humility is heroic because it's not thinking, well, I'm no good. Everyone's so much better than me. It's saying, you know what? Actually, I've I've been given power by God. The Father has trusted me with influence and power, and he's actually put me in a position of blessing but it's to bless others. And I want to mirror the heart of Christ. So I'm choosing to forgo my status and actually use my power and influence to serve the needs of those who are most vulnerable. What's that look like in real time? I'll give you three uh, just quick examples from my, my family's uh, life this past week. Um, just real quick, we're, we're doing this kitchen renovation. I won't bore you with the details. It's, it's satanic. It's been going on forever. I can't uh, and what's funny is, as we're remodeling the kitchen, uh, early on in the process, my wife would always ask me, she's like, oh, what color do you think we should paint the walls, what kind of, you know, uh, you know countertops you want to get? And I thought, at the beginning, she genuinely wanted my opinion. I, I don't know why I thought that. I've been married 13 years, you know, I, I, I just, silly boy. And, um, and what's funny is, because I, I, I typically have not pay I'm like, I like this, and then I would see her face, she'd go, hmm. Uh, <laughs> And somewhere in the process, there's a thousand of those conversations, I started realizing, well, she actually just needs to kind of be affirmed here. And so she was like, you know, wh- what do you, th- you know, for the drapes, you think we should get orange? Or is this too red? What, you know, what do you think? And instead of saying, yeah, that's awful, that's right, I would say, oh, I don't know, you know, what's your gut tell you? <laughs> and it wasn't just to get along. She would just say, well, I just, I just think this one is going to go a little bit better. I said, you've got to go with your gut. You have a beautiful, beautiful instinct uh, for fashion. She's like, really? I was like, really? She's like, oh, come here, you know, I got this big hug and kind of like humiliate I have opinions, but my wife has needs too. Humility will transform your relationships. I am serious. My son Dell, seven years old, he likes to play lightsabers. On Wednesday, I'm working on the message. I'm, I'm putting this together so it's going to help us understand Christ more. And I, I, I'm, I'm right in the flow and typing my sermon on a laptop, and all of a sudden he starts tapping on the glass, tick 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 tick, tick, tick. wong wong wong, waving a lightsaber at me, right? And I'm like, okay, son, just get, you know, give me give me ten minutes. He's like, okay. Wong, long, long—you know, kind of thing. It's like, come outside, Daddy. And here's the deal: I, I want my son to know I love him more than I love you. Can I just be honest? I, I want him not—I want—I want, I want him to love Christ, and so I, I don't want him to think I like just love the church and I love him. And so I'm like, oh, I'm right in the flow here about humility, other people's needs ahead of my own. So I close a laptop. <laughs> take out my lifesaver and went outside. <laughs> and you know what? It interrupted my work day. It was in the flow, but my son, he was like beaming. He was like, just like thrilled. He's like, Daddy's out here playing lightsabers with me. so more important than his work. Final thing is when it happens and, and, and you begin living that out, it influences other people. So on Friday, my little girl, who's 10, goes on a field trip, and her friend asks her to sit with her. And so she says, OK. But then one of the lonely girls, kind of a, who's not like a popular girl in the class, says, Chase, will you sit with me? And she's like, oh, I kind of told someone, but Chase, so I said, what did you do, sweetheart? She goes, well, what I realized is like, she's always lonely, she's always last, and she has to sit all alone. So I told my friend, I'm gonna gonna sit with her. And I don't care what my daughter ever gets on a math test. We are 37th in the nation anyway, right? It's kind of like, okay, okay, that to me, That that to be a success, amen? That success, humility is beautiful. And it is of the greatest worth in the Father's eyes. It is adopting the cruciform life of Christ that says, you know what? When I see the needs of other people, I'm going to sacrifice so they can be exalted. Even if it means I bring myself low. And the power to do that flows from one source in the universe. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul marvels at the cross of Jesus. He says, look at him. He was found in appearance as a man, but he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the cross is commonplace in our culture. We don't get this. Some of you wear crosses around your neck. you got a cross on your tattoo. They're in our church. They're commonplace. But in the ancient world, there was nothing more humiliating than a Roman cross. A cross meant one thing. It was for slaves and political rebels. They had three forms of capital punishment in Rome. Crucifixion, decapitation, and burning alive. And you know what was the worst? Crucifixion. Because it was thought to be the most shameful thing you could endure. Victims were actually lashed with a leather strap that had bone and metal in it, strapped, they'd take it out in public, strapped to a huge wooden beam, and they had to carry that in front of all the people, and then stripped for days of excruciating pain and eventual asphyxiation. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, Can any man be found who's willing to be fastened to that cursed tree, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on his chest and shoulders, Breathing in long-drawn agony. And here's what he wrote. He says, I think he would have many excuses for dying before ever mounting a cross. The cross was not humbling. It was humiliating. There's a difference. And yet that's the death, guys, that the followers of Jesus, they saw their Lord face this. The greatest man they had ever known, the only man who had ever lived a perfect life on the history of the world, was brought down to the lowest place the Roman world could invent, death by crucifixion. Now, as Christians, we sing the song Wonderful Cross because we believe what Christ accomplished on that tree turned everything upside down. Amen? We believe Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice. In other words, he took all of our sin, my sin, your sin. He died in our place as our substitute. His blood pays for our sin. That was for you. And because of his death, if we trust in him, we receive eternal life. Amen? That's the gospel. The good news is that cross was for you. No matter what you've done, how arrogant or self-centered a life you may have lived, Jesus died to forgive you. And if you receive that forgiveness in humility, he cleanses your heart and then puts his spirit in you. That's why we sing the wonderful cross. It's the source of our salvation. But understand this. 2,000 years ago, the Roman world, they saw Christ on the cross and said, God, hanging naked on a tree, they shook their head. It was humiliating. Look at this piece of ancient graffiti archaeologists uncovered in Rome. It's from the second or third century. Can you make out what it is? It was found on the wall of a guardhouse, and if you look at a tracing of it, it shows a crucified man with the head of a donkey, meaning he's stupid. And next to the cross is a man with his arm raised in worship of the man on the cross. And if you look below it, scribbled in very crude Greek are the words, alexaminos worships his God. In other words, This graffiti was uncovered in a guardhouse wall in Rome, and scholars said it was meant to mock an imprisoned Christian named Alex by depicting his Lord as a mule-headed loser. Because in a culture that valued honor above humility, that's what Jesus' crucifixion meant. The idea that any great individual, God Almighty, would intentionally suffer crucifixion was bizarre, and yet that is the source of divine humilitas. It is cruciform it means you actually die to yourself because you realize the needs of those beneath you are actually greater than your own rights and comfort. What Paul writes here in Philippians, guys, what we are holding in our hands literally turned the Roman world on its head. It started this humility revolution because honor and shame, all of a sudden Jesus hangs on a cross and all of a sudden his worshipers are praising and worshiping him. Greatness was redefined. Humility recast. If the greatest man on earth that we've ever known chose to forego his status and die for others, you know what the early Christians said? I guess greatness is about humble service. The low point becomes the high point. To be exalted in God's eyes, you stoop to serve. That's what humility is. The noble choice to forego your status and use your power to serve and save others. Humility is cruciform, guys. And this is the invitation that God makes of you. He says, in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. In your attitude, it should be the same as Jesus Christ. You greater than me. It is the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. And mark this, it is something only the spirit of Jesus Christ can generate in your heart. It is utterly unnatural of human impulses. It requires supernatural strength. But Christ can grow it in every single person in the room. If you're watching online, Christ is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And if you resist our culture and say, Christ, whatever it takes, reign in my heart, reign in my heart, take my career, my marriage, my whatever it is, your life will change. As you're going to see next week, humility will change your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your leadership on and off the field, your business, your career. It is the missing element that our world is desperate for. Do they see it in you? Do they see it in you? Is that the way you lead? Are you saying, how can I die today? To serve my wife better. How can I die a little bit more today? How can Tim become low so that my kids become great? Is that the way you love? I pray it is. And what I want to do is pray for you right now that Christ will unleash that by his spirit in your life. Father God, I pray we're humbled by Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, that you came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for me, God. as a a ransom for every single person, Lord, in this room. And Father, by faith right now, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just be unleashed in our church, Lord, that we wouldn't be known for great things, Father, but simply for being a humble, faithful witness that gives all glory to Jesus Christ. God, we just lift up the cross. We lift up the cross. It's the shame of the world, but it's the glory of God. You chose foolish things and weak things and things that are not to shame the wise Lord. And so today we lift up the cross. We call it wonderful. Lord, would our lives be conformed. Make, give us the cruciform life of Jesus, Father, so that all glory would go to our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. All God's people said together, amen, amen.